Well, good morning. Some of you are brand new to Crossroads uh, here in uh, Henry County in Napoleon. And so let me introduce myself. I am Wes and uh, I'm the pastor that is the old guy on staff. And uh, this is uh, the new guy. And this is the, the guy that's been here the second longest, which would make me uh, Papa Bear, him Baby Bear, and him Mama Bear if we were doing that. So we're glad that you're here. We recognize as we, uh, we journey through the book of Romans uh, that some of you have been here with us each and every week, and some of you uh, are just kind of getting on board. And either way, uh, we are glad that you're with us uh, today. Uh, I want you to know right up front that the flow of this message in uh, Romans 9, this first section that we're going to look at this morning, is going to speak a little more to our heads this week, uh, but I promise next week when we finish it up, it's going to speak a little more directly and connect with our hearts. Uh, friends, uh, I just want to tell you, I hope that this morning that you have your hiking boots on, that you have your hiking walking sticks, because the next two weeks in Romans chapter 9 is going to take us through, quite frankly, some fairly challenging uh, terrain. The good news is, if you do any hiking, you recognize that sometimes the more challenging the hike, the more beautiful the views are that you can see along the way. And uh, while many Bible scholars would say that Romans chapter 8 is uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and we've just spent three weeks, Levi's taken us three weeks through Romans chapter 8, many of those same Bible scholars would say that Romans chapter 9 is one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible. And here's the reason they say that. This morning, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about and address the sovereignty of God. The truth that God has the power and the authority to rule over all that he has created. That means that God has been and always will be in complete control of everything. And folks, when I say everything, I mean absolutely everything. There is not a single molecule in our universe that is outside of the control of God. If we have an accurate view of who God is, if we have an accurate view of his wisdom and of his power and of his authority and his goodness, then the truth that God is in absolute control has the ability to bring our hearts peace and confidence even in the mixed up world that we live in. And that is really my prayer for us in these next two weeks that our, our better understanding God's sovereignty would cause our hearts to fully trust him and enjoy the, the peace that can come. Well, like so many wonderful biblical truths, the sovereignty of God, as Levi mentioned, it involves a good deal of mystery. I want to remind you of Isaiah 55. God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this about himself, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As we travel along this morning, we'll do well to remember that we will absolutely never completely understand the way God works. 
We can have the, the absolute best theology. We can understand, in fact, everything that the Bible reveals to us about the goodness and the nature of God. And it will not still eliminate all the mystery that comes with God. For example, how can God be literally above time, space, and matter? How can God exist outside of time, space, and matter? I, I don't know. Do you? H how can Jesus Christ be 100% God and 100% human at the very same time? I don't know. Do you? What exactly is eternity past, or for that matter, eternity future? I don't completely understand that, and I'm confident that you don't either. When we consider God's sovereignty, there are aspects of God's sovereignty that are actually more difficult to uh, accept and appreciate than others. For example, if God is both good and God is in complete control, then why does evil exist? If God is good and he is also in control, why do bad things happen in this world? What's the connection between God's sovereignty and things like sickness, birth defects, or terrible, terrible accidents? These are difficult and they're challenging questions to wrestle with. This morning as we look at just the first part of Romans chapter 9, Paul gets very, very specific and he speaks about God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation. Paul provides some insight into how is it that some people come to personal faith in Jesus Christ and others do not. In short, Paul is going to take on the age-old question, does God choose us or do we choose him? So, like I said, if you haven't already, I would encourage you to grab your hiking boots and your, 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 uh, your lace them up and, and get your imaginary hiking sticks because we are going to take a path that Paul leads us on that can be a little bit tricky this morning to navigate, but I promise it has all kinds of potential for great reward. Now, Romans 8 follows up, or yeah, uh, precedes Romans 9. So let me quickly remind you of just a few of the amazing truths that we have learned over the past three weeks. In Romans 8, 1, we read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus has completely paid your sin debt. Romans 8, 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with ours that we are God's children. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of the God Most High. Romans 8, verses 31 and 32 say this, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is saying, since God was literally willing to sacrifice his one and only son, there has never been nor will there ever be anything that he won't be willing to give us. He will withhold nothing good from us. And finally, in chapter 8, it ends this way in verse 39. Romans 8.39 says, Neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. 
Paul says nothing we've ever done, nothing we will ever do will ever cause God to stop loving us. No amount of mistakes, dumb choices, selfishness, or setbacks will cause God to say, I'm done with you. Chapter 8 is chock full of promises and, and, and truths of the, the lengths that God will go to redeem sinful man, to bridge the gap between sinful humans and himself. In fact, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses a logical objection that people might have related to God's ability to do all the things that he promised that he would do in chapter 8. Paul recognizes that there are some who would wonder, can God keep his promises to us when it looks like his covenant or his promise with Israel did not hold? That's really the context of chapter 9. Paul, what about the Jews? They were God's chosen people, and clearly most of them have rejected Jesus. That's the question Paul begins with in chapter 9. What happened to God's chosen people? Did God's promises fail? Let's take a look at the text together. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn or swipe to Romans chapter 9. Uh, it'll be on the screen in uh, NIV translation, but it's always a good thing to have your own Bible or your own uh, device in front of you to be able to highlight, underline, make notes, uh, those sorts of things. So follow along on the screen as I read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, I, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. In verse 6, he writes, It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10 says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time our father Isaac, uh, by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done any good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, if you have your own Bible, I would encourage you to underline, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, let's take a, a closer look as we jump in at the first three verses here. We see Paul's absolute love and concern for his fellow Jews. 
In verse 2, Paul says, He has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He's able to acknowledge that many of his Jewish countrymen and women have rejected the grace that has been offered uh, by Jesus Christ. And as such, and this is so serious and so sad, but as such, because they have rejected the Messiah, they are cursed and cut off from Christ. And Paul understands what it means to be cut off from Christ. This is a heaven and a hell situation. His statement in verse 3 makes it clear that Paul would do absolutely anything to see his fellow Jews come to relationship and authentic faith in Jesus Christ. He he goes so far as to say, I I would be willing to trade places with them if I could. In verses 4 through 5, you'll see, uh, if you've got your Bible, take a look again. It's, It's literally a list of all the spiritual blessings that God has specifically given uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, It's uh, it's all the reasons why they should have recognized that Jesus was the the long-awaited Messiah. First of all, it says that, that God called and adopted Israel as his own special people. God literally gave them his word, the law. They had a a special revelation that no other people had at that time of God's nature and his character and how he worked. The Jewish nation had been literally given the temple, the actual dwelling place that that contained the physical presence of God was uh, among them. They were given the prophets who foretold the coming Savior. And when Jesus came, he was actually born a Jew as well. The the Jews literally, church, had more spiritual advantages than any people group on earth. They had more opportunity to recognize who Jesus was and why he came than anyone else. And yet, throughout history and even to this day, Many, many Jewish people reject Jesus as Messiah. And as such, they are cut off, it says, from Christ. Church, have you ever wondered how tragic it is that that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, uh, Jesus himself being a Jew, uh, rejected him? How can this be? Did God somehow fail the Jewish people? That's the question at hand. Paul answers that very important question with a resounding no. Absolutely not. Take another look at Romans 9, 6. Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed. And I don't know how much of this we will cover in the next coming weeks, but Romans 9, 10, and chapter 11 all record in in long, detailed form Uh, Paul's reassurance that God himself has not failed Israel. God's promise to Israel, even though it was somewhat misunderstood, will absolutely and has been absolutely upheld by God. And here's the important part. And so we can trust that he will uphold the promises that he makes to us as well. In verses 6 through 13, Paul makes the case that there is a very reasonable explanation why the number of Jews that have come to faith in Jesus is lower than what some have and would expect. Paul states in verses 7 through 9 that not all ethnic Jews 
are a part of Israel, his chosen people. Look again at that section. Paul says, For not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. And that's a little confusing. Verse 7, he says, Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So let's break that down a little bit. Thinking back to the Old Testament, you might remember at their very old age, God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac that they would, uh, would have a son. And uh, Abraham, not Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah. And they were well beyond childbearing age at this point in time. And to, to confuse matters even more, they had had no children up to this point. But God makes a promise to them that you will have a son. And when that son didn't come in the time frame that they thought that son should come, Sarah defies the plan, and Abraham executed plan B. And that would be that Abraham would, would lie with Sarah's uh, Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and, and he did, and, and then they had a son, Ishmael. And then several years later, according to God's plan, and promise and timing, their son Isaac was born between Abraham and Sarah. So it was Isaac and not Ishmael that was the son that God had promised. Paul wants us to understand that Abraham's two sons really represent two different distinct groups of people. Isaac represents people who will be a part of Israel because of their faith in God and their trust in his promises. Ishmael then represents those people who will reject God and really strive to do life and make life work on their own apart from God, just the very same way that uh, Abraham and, and uh, Sarah had tried a little bit on their own. There are certainly going to be some ethnic Jews who are and will be a part of true Israel because of their faith in Jesus. But sadly, many, many ethnic Jews are not a part of God's chosen people simply because they have rejected their Messiah, Jesus. And next week, we'll look at the fact and we'll read about the fact that for God's own purposes, he chose a bunch of non-Jewish people by ethnic race called Gentiles to be also a part of Israel his chosen people. And that's really, really good news because I would suspect that there might not be a single person in here that is of Jewish ethnic uh, heritage. Church, here's the main point that Paul is making in this first section of Romans 9. You cannot accuse God of not keeping his promises because the number of ethnic Jews that have chosen to follow Jesus is less than you might expect. The problem isn't with and has never been with God's sovereignty or his ability to keep his problem or his promise. The problem is with our ability to completely understand God's promise and his plan. Just like Abraham and Sarah didn't completely understand God's promise. 
Paul wants the church in Rome and us to understand that God's chosen people are made up of some ethnic Jews and a lot of non-ethnic Jews who are all a part of God's promised people because of faith in Jesus Christ. The covenant God had with Israel was never about ethnic identity. It was about trusting in God's promises. Now, church, why is this so important for you and I to understand? It's incredibly important because if God cannot be trusted to keep his covenant with Israel, how can you and I entrust our lives into his hands? That's reason enough alone for Paul to want to make sure he clarifies uh, this issue with, uh, with all people. Paul is helping anyone who may believe that God wasn't true to his promise with Israel to understand that the, promise was, the problem was not with God, but with their understanding of the promise. The promise was to true Israel, not ethnic Israel. Now, church, I want us to finish this morning by taking a look at, at verses 10 through 13. And uh, this is the section that can be a little more challenging to, to not, no, not so much understand, but challenging to embrace. And if I'm honest, these, these three verses are among some of the most unsettling verses and at the same time the most reassuring verses in Romans 9, uh, if not the entire Bible. They address two very important perspectives when it comes to this issue of salvation. Listen again as I read verses 10 through 13, and I'll give you a, a couple of different perspectives, and then I want us to, to be challenged by what does this actually mean to our, our own lives. Look again at verse 10. Paul is describing what the Old Testament says about how God decided who would continue the physical line of his chosen people. Verse 10 says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, and here's this important phrase again, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And in that last verse, that, that loved and hated, uh, those words don't, don't mean love and hate as much as they mean one I have chosen and one I have rejected. So we start off again with, with Abraham and Sarah, and they have one son, Ishmael, through Hagar, and then Isaac. And Isaac is the son that God has promised. And then Isaac marries Rebekah, and she gives birth to twins. And their names are Esau and Jacob. So. Any of you moms that are, are still looking for names, Esau is a good, strong name, Jacob as well. And I want you, you folks to know this is a little personal to me and perhaps to Levi and a, a few others here. I myself am a twin, and I happen to be the older twin. And so I remind my younger, six-minute younger brother that if we were living in ancient days, I would be the, the son that would be benefited by being the favored status of being the oldest son. And are you the older? Are you? All right, good. So Levi and I are both <laughs> older sons. Awesome. And in those days, we can't stress it enough and we can't understand in our culture 
being the older son carried with it an incredible amount of favor. The older son was the one who got the lion's share of the inheritance. He was the one that, that uh, was just favored in many, many ways. That was normal. That was customary. And yet Paul reminds us in order that God's purpose and election might stand, God chose to use Jacob, who was the younger, instead of Esau, the older, to establish his nation of Israel, his chosen people. In fact, I think many of you might be aware that, that Jacob's name was eventually turned to Israel, changed to Israel, that he had 12 sons who would, would be, they would birth the 12 tribes of Israel. For God's own purpose, he chose the younger instead of the older. Now notice what verse 11 says. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God's choosing Jacob, Paul wants us to understand, had nothing at all to do with Jacob uh, being chosen because he was somehow special or, or better than his brother. Uh, it, it was just simply God's choice. In verse 12, it says, not by works, but by him who calls. God's choice had nothing to do with what either of these boys had done or not done because God's choice took place before they were even born. Again, for God's own purpose, he sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau. Now, church, you may or may not have picked up on this yet, but Paul is using God's sovereign choice in this issue of Jacob and Esau to illustrate God's sovereignty and how it was involved in choosing some of the Jews, the ethnic Jews that he did, and not others. Paul is teaching that God's sovereignty is in some way or some form directly connected to who gets spiritually saved and who doesn't. And I told you, and I think Levi told you as well, this is a challenging, challenging teaching. But Wes, I can literally hear many, if not most of you think, that doesn't seem at all fair. And I would agree with you. In human, earthly, limited perspective, it isn't fair in any way. But hang with me for just a few moments. For those of you who, who may uh, be familiar with what Paul is talking about uh, or may not be familiar with what, I'm, what Paul's talking about in terms of these choices, I want to put a little more modern language uh, to this issue of salvation as it relates to the way people talk about it in theological uh, circles. And I, I promise to be as concise and as clear as I can. Uh, and I want you to know that next week as we tackle this again, Paul is going to literally start out addressing this issue and this question of fairness. So we will get to it. But in Romans 9, it's one of the many places in the Bible, and I'm not sure if you were aware of this, that talks about what, what people refer to as election. It, it, another term that's often used that's kind of the counterpoint to election uh, is called free will. So you've got election and free will as it relates to salvation. And, and I re realize that many of you have never even heard those terms, election or free will. Uh, I'm aware that there are some of you in here that, that already know what election and free will mean. And I'm aware that there are some of you who have very, very strong opinions and convictions about one over the other. And all of that is okay. I want you to realize that there is a level of tension and a level of mystery when it comes to understanding 
who will ultimately be saved and who will ultimately not come to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look at these two perspectives of salvation and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. The first one, election. Election refers to the belief that at some point in time in eternity past, before the world was even created, God ultimately chose who will be saved and who will not. Now, people who believe in election emphasize verses in the Bible, and there are many, and I'm going to give you three. They emphasize verses like this, and if you have a bulletin, you may want to write these three down, and you can find others as well. John 6.39, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, and, and this is the will of him who sent me, speaking of God the Father, that I will not lose, that I will lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. All those, Jesus says, that were predestined for salvation by God the Father will be saved. He's not going to lose a single one. This is Jesus in John 6:45. No one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. So only those who are chosen and drawn by God will come to faith in Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 says this, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So being chosen from the beginning implies literally being chosen by God before the world even came into being. Now, now that's a very, very simple de definition of, of election. And if you look at the verses that I just read, and you look at other verses like them in isolation without the rest of Scripture, you would be convinced that salvation involves solely election. However, there's another perspective called free will. Free will refers then to the belief that God creates and gives people the ability to freely choose for themselves either to accept and to follow Jesus or to reject Jesus Christ. People who, who believe in free will emphasize Bible verses like, and let me read a, a few here, like John 1.12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All is pretty inclusive. Here's one that many of you will, will be familiar with, John 3.16-18. through 18. For God so loved the world, again, a very inclusive uh, statement there, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And then back in the Old Testament, in Joshua 24, 15, it says, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself. Choose for yourself this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, 
served be beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But for, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, these are verses that describe and talk about how God calls and makes his, his forgiveness and grace available to all who would choose to receive him. That's the definition of free will. And if you looked at those verses to the exclusion of the other verses that I read, you would be convinced that salvation is totally about free will. So which is it? Election or free will? I want to let you know that there are literally countless very godly, very intelligent, very astute Bible theologians that for more than 2,000 years have debated that very question. Which is it? And none of them has completely, completely figured it out. Some of them have some pretty strong opinions on both sides, but none of them have completely uh, figured it out. Paul understood that it's not wrong to study these issues and even to debate them. We do need to keep in mind, though, that there is, I believe, by design, a lot of tension and mystery when it comes to how is it that God chooses and draws individuals to himself and how that connects to our free will to choose or accept or reject the free gift of grace that Jesus Christ makes possible. Honestly, the point of this message is not in order for you to take one side or another. We'll talk a little more about this next week, but here's what I want to leave you with. And, and I'm saying this because we are, are teaching through Romans chapter 9 right now. And we're not in one of these other sections. But no matter what your personal views or your perspective is on free will or election, doesn't really matter if, if you're really resistant to this idea of election. Romans chapter 9 confronts us with the reality that God's sovereignty is somehow involved in the process of salvation. And if we're honest, the thought, uh, that thought related to salvation, if salvation is connected in some way to God choosing some while not choosing others, that's bothersome to most of us. I know people who have rashly said things about this issue of God choosing some and not others. They've said things like, if that's the way God is, I don't want anything to do with him. I've heard people say, I cannot love and follow a God who would choose some people over others. And church, while I can honestly appreciate the emotion involved in that and kind of the knee-jerk response to something like that, I, I want to challenge you with the, the reality that that is, that is an unwise position to take. Some have, have ultimately described election and, and salvation as kind of two sides of the very same coin what is a hundred percent clear is that god has given people the ability and the freedom to make choices even as it relates to salvation and those choices actually matter especially when it comes to salvation as i said next week we'll look a little more and attempt to clarify a little more and i think it will be helpful in the meantime as we kind of start to wrap things up I want to remind you again of Isaiah 55. For some of you who might be here this morning struggling with God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation, keep the truth that God's ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts in mind. The, the fact that God's ways and thoughts are, are so much higher than our thoughts and our ways 
turns a number of impossibilities into realities. God can turn a number of impossibilities into realities. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that it makes it possible that all the beauty and the security that can be found in election and in free will can be true at the very same time. I mean, we can literally be chosen by God before the beginning of creation. Our salvation can have absolutely nothing to do with anything we have ever done or will do. We can be eternally secure in that truth. And at the very same time, our salvation involves our choosing God as an act of our free will. God chooses me and I in turn choose God. How can both of those truths be, same, be a true at the same time? Uh, I don't know. Uh, again, I'm still struggling with how is Jesus 100% God and 100% man. It, it just blows your mind. If you ever struggle with God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation, the last thing I want to tell you this morning is that you will be served well to look at the heart of God. When you're confused about how election and, and God's sovereignty can be together, uh, I would encourage you to look at the heart of God. And there's one, one great place to do that. It's 2 Peter verses, uh, 9 of chapter 3. And listen to this. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to repentance. Church, that is is the heart of God. He wants everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. It's impossible to miss the patience and the love and the grace that God desires for all people. Does God choose us or do we choose Him? While there's room for debate on that, election and free will play a part together in the salvation process. But church, that is not the very most important question. I want to leave you with the very most important question you can think about today as it relates to salvation. It's not whether God chose you or whether you choose Him in the end. It's this. Have you personally ever made the choice to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. At the end of the day, God is either sovereign and He is in control or He's not. If we believe that God is sovereign, it creates to some degree some tension in our lives because we struggle to reconcile how can a good God allow so much evil in this world. If we choose, on the other hand, to believe that God is not sovereign, he is not in control of this world. Well, then everything is meaningless and simply random. The more we lean into and we experience the character and the heart of God, the more we can trust that He is completely loving, fair, just, and wise in the way that He exercises His sovereignty, even as it relates to to salvation. And he does all of that without ever violating our free will. 
We'll never completely understand how all those things work together, but the Bible teaches it, and I believe it. The more I believe it, the more peace I have in my heart. The band can come up, and they'll lead us in a, a final song here. Church, my prayer for you is not that we get bogged down into election or, or free will specifically, but that we see the sovereignty of God even in the most important of issues like salvation. And we recognize He is good, He is powerful, and we can trust Him. And uh, when we get to that point, we have a level of assurance and peace that's supernaturally given that the rest of this world just doesn't have. Next week, we will look at uh, why is God sovereign, and we'll look at this issue of His authority in order to be sovereign. Would you stand and the band will lead us in a final, final song here. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you for who you are. Lord, we confess that there are a lot of things in this uh, world and in, in our understanding of you and even as we look at scripture that uh, are troubling on our, our human level and our, our ability to understand. And so Lord, um, would you forgive us for the times that we reduce you from being who you really are in order to make you fit in some sort of a box that we can understand? Lord, um, you are anyway, but we willingly release you to be the God that you are, everything that you are, a God that we can't fully understand, but a God that over the, the course of history and over the course of the history in our life, you have proven yourself to be a God that we can trust. And so uh, to that end, Lord, help us trust you more. We thank you for the opportunity now, Lord, to worship you in song. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, can you leave that screen up there? I just wanted to leave you, you all with, with this image. Um, this is a really, really difficult thing to wrap our head around. Wes, you did a great job of making it clear. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions when, when we, we come to God and we think, how could you choose some and not the other? And I just want you to see this. You and I are sheep. We're sheep. And he is the shepherd, which means he's in charge. He gets to make the decisions, but he's not a dictator who's going to smack us around. He's a, he's a good shepherd who loves us. There was a group of people in Israel that thought they were special because they were chosen, and they were getting arrogant because they thought, well, God chose us. And Paul says, listen, it's not about the family you came from, y'all. It's about your faith. And I just want to say to those of you who are here this morning that, that grew up in, you know, when I went to church every Sunday at the Lutheran church or at the Presbyterian or, or I grew up in the Catholic church and I was baptized, I want you to hear from your good shepherd, it's not about the family you came from. It's about the faith you have today. So stay humble. Stay humble and trust God. Trust him. He loves you and he made a way for you to know him apart from anything that you've ever done. So stay humble and trust him. And that will keep us in our place. I'll never forget when I was in college, I went to a coffee shop and I was talking to a gentleman there who, who was a self, he was a pagan. He believed in Native American spiritism. He was talking about the spirits and had it all rationalized. And I just kept asking him questions. Well, what about this? Have you thought about Jesus? What about that? For an hour and a half and nothing worked. And I left that meeting. I left that encounter with that gentleman thinking, Lord Jesus, why do I get this? And he doesn't. And church, I feel like I made the decision to follow Christ, but I left that encounter thinking the only reason I know the Lord Jesus is my Savior is because Christ lifted that veil for me. That keeps me humble. It keeps me humble. And we move forward in the assumption that you're chosen, that God has chosen all of us in Christ. And so we evangelize and we preach and we teach. And when we come up against it, we pray, Father, lift the veil. Choose them. Choose them all. 
bring them in. So I just wanted to leave you that. Hopefully that clears it up. It tells us it's not about the family we came from. It's about our faith, and it gives us how to pray. We pray for the Lord to choose, to lift the veil, to open blind eyes, to bring the truth to, to, to bear on, on all of us so that the lost can get found and the found can get free. Let me pray for you, and then I'll send you in the name of the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a big God. I thank you for my brother Wes and just the clarity that he brought a really difficult subject and the reality that both are true, that you choose and that you give us the opportunity to choose you as well. Lord Jesus, I don't know how that works, but I thank you for your heart and leaving it mysterious. I pray that you'd keep us humble and that you'd help us to go after everyone in the assumption of what First Peter said. You want all to come to a knowledge and repentance and be saved through Christ. And you've made a way through Christ Jesus. Keep us humble in that pursuit of the lost. Keep us in our place. Remind us it's not about what we've done because you've chosen us. Give us the ability to, to bring the lost in, Lord. And uh, set that picture ever before us that you're a good shepherd. That when we don't understand, when, when we're, we're frustrated and, and have questions, that you would just give us the ability to trust you as our good shepherd. That you would lead us by still waters by quiet streams, lead us into green pastures, Lord, and we would just rest in the mystery knowing that we don't have to have it all figured out, and that you love us, that you got us, that we are sheep whom you love dearly and will care for tremendously. We ask all this in your name, for your glory, amen.